episode 432 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our colleagues, our family, not even our pets, I'm afraid. Joining me for the news roundup, uh, longtime listener, first-time caller, Jim Dempsey, who teaches at UC Berkeley School of Law and is a policy advisor to the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Does that count as bipartisan in Northern California? Oh, it's beyond that. Yeah, people were astonished when I retired from my full-time job at Berkeley, kept the lectureship, and then went to to work with Andy Grotto down at Stanford. So, But I'm an East Coast guy, so I'm completely oblivious to these West Coast rivalries. That's right. Uh, well, and and so you don't even go to the the football game, so it no, doesn't matter. No, so I <laughs> exactly. All right. And David Chris, founder of uh, Culper Partners, former assistant AG at the National Security Division in the Justice Department. David, do you have any loyalties to either of those institutions? Nope. I did not attend, nor do any of my children attend at this moment. So right now I'm completely indifferent. I wish Jim all the best in managing his conflicts of interest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Maury Shank, a London-based lawyer and technologist, and I'm sure is more worried about the UK's performance in... Is it the UK or is it England? I guess it's England's performance in the the World Cup. Well... It's England, England and Wales, both are part of the UK, are in the same group. Living in England, I'll be cheering for England. US is in the same group, and I surprisingly found myself cheering for England over the US, so I guess I've made the transition. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. Well, the U.S. is hanging by a thread as far as I get. Well, that's not true. If they if they beat Iran, then they get in, I guess, and uh, uh, most likely. And if they don't, they almost certainly don't. Um, it was it was sort of notable that they were able to get a tie with England because, as I understand it, there was quite a bit of trash talking from the English team about the pathetic, you know, Americans, and then they sort of held their own pretty well. Yeah, pretty impressive held considering. Their own. They England had never, had never, has never actually beaten the U.S. in the uh, World Cup. All right. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. And that is the last we will have to say about soccer or football. Instead, let's talk spyware. David, there's a, there's a lot of activity around the malware that allows you to break into people's phones. And Pegasus from NSO is the poster child for people hating it. Uh, it turns out that the Washington Post has written on this recently. I know Jim pointed me to their editorial, which I think is just completely nuts. And then the French, there's a French criminal lawsuit for, it's not really exactly the same kind of spyware. It was packet monitoring stuff. But the people who sold it to Libya are on trial for being complicit in Gaddafi's torture. And the NSO is in the Supreme Court. So let's let's start with those. Who, who'd like to talk about the Washington Post's completely misconceived editorial? <laughs> well, Stuart, I'm actually, I'm happy to rise to the bait there. I agree with you. I was, I thought it was completely muddled. Remember, this started as a story, and into my view, a legitimate one, about an Israeli company, in essence, losing control of its technology, that technology being used by either undemocratic governments or quasi-democratic governments with human rights issues to spy on dissidents and other government critics. Then... The New York Times has been beating the drum about the FBI considering purchasing this technology, 
for lawful hacking. Now, remember, lawful hacking was the alternative to encryption backdoors. Right. Uh, opponents like myself of the backdoors argued that there were alternative techniques to the available to the government, including use of technology to break into specific phones or specific computers and gain access to information before it was encrypted. And when the New York Times first started reporting on this, they were expressing shock that the, the government would be finding ways to break into phones or computers. And my attitude at the time was, well, I sure hope they're figuring out how to break into phones and computers with a warrant. But the debate around this has gotten so muddled, and the Washington Post editorial yeah. is an example of that, because you've now got the FBI director in the position of apologizing for what I think he was properly supposed to be doing, or what the FBI was supposed to be doing, was to was looking at this technology and considering buying it for U.S. government use. And in fact, the latest documents that the New York Times got through the FOIA, which prompted the latest round of stories, said that the FBI was doing exactly what I think we would want them to do, which is they were considering what additional limitations and constraints and controls on top of the warrant requirement, what additional controls should be used if the government is using something like Pegasus, uh, this NSO group technology. All that got wiped aside when the U.S. government put NSO group on the entities list and prohibited U.S. companies from having anything to do with them. And it just the, the name Pegasus and the name NSO group just got too, too radioactive. But to me, if you're not going to have encryption backdoors, the government should be able to find other ways. And I think civil liberties advocates have noted that the government could find, should find, will find other ways with a warrant and possibly with additional checks and balances to get into the bad guy's devices. So now you've got the terror, and this is the, the, the sort of terrible situation we're in, which is the FBI directors sort of being forced to say, oh, we weren't really considering using it, and oh, we weren't really going to be breaking into people's computers. And so instead of having a debate about what should be the checks and balances, which is where I think the debate should go, we're having this debate about whether the government should even use spyware at right. all. I have to say, I, I wanted to, but I have to agree with Jim on this. I thought the coverage on this was extremely muddled and failed to parse two very separate issues. One is the direct threat to privacy from the U.S. government using commercial spyware. And the other is problems with the U.S. government or, or other U.S. entities doing business with companies that help governments do bad things. And I really thought the coverage, uh, the news coverage, putting aside even the editorial stuff, was just very thin in not mentioning, if at all, until very late in the articles, that if the FBI or some other law enforcement agency in the US used Pegasus, it would presumably do so under court order. And, and if it weren't doing so, of course, the problem wouldn't be the use of Pegasus. The problem would be the non-use of a court order. And you know, the, as Jim says, there was a time when the keys under doormats crowd 
I mean, in other words, the strongest technical experts supporting encryption and privacy were affirmatively calling for lawful hacking as the solution here. And I, I don't know whether they still hold that position. There were some retreats from it, I thought, in respect of things like operating system updates that get pushed with individualized right. vulnerabilities in them. But I think the evolution of that might be an interesting story in and of itself. But the, you know, the direct threat to privacy aspect of this, I think, just wasn't carefully presented. And I thought it was presented in a way that might leave you confused. There is still the serious question of the US government getting involved with these, you know, unsavory companies. As Jim says, I mean, to skip to the end, it's just this month that I think NSO went on the commerce BIS list. So, you know, they got round to sort of saying, okay, don't do business with these bad guys. It might be useful, but I won't do it unless you say, Stuart, to sort of walk through the legal proceedings that led to the SG, the Solicitor General, taking a position on sovereign immunity here that I think is interesting too. I kind of agree with you both on this. I'm not at all puzzled how this happened, though. This is <laughs> this, this was bait and switch from the left and from the companies uh, pay, paying for the left. Uh, basically, they said, first, we'll kill, we'll make sure everything is end-to-end -end encrypted by saying you can always hack. And then when they, they find that everything is end-to-end -end encrypted and they try to hack, we'll start toxifying every tool that they use to hack. And that's what we're, we're in. Notwithstanding that, I actually do agree. There are a lot of reasons not to use NSO stuff. One, you are underwriting sales to countries you probably don't want it sold to. And maybe more importantly, you're installing and using for your most sensitive, some of your most sensitive national security activities, some foreign product that is tightly regulated by a government that is not yeah. known for being reluctant to engage in intelligence collection. So it's it's a counterintelligence risk to use something like that. And those are all reasonable objections to the FBI using this, but that, that's not the one that everybody is pitching. So while we're on NSO then, NSO, as part of the toxification campaign, private companies have been suing them, claiming a variety of violations of intellectual property and hacking of, in this case, what. And NSO, if, if I remember right, said, wait a minute, we were doing that for a government. And your lawsuit against us is a poorly disguised effort to regulate the activities of a foreign government, and foreign governments have sovereign immunity, and you shouldn't be able to sue us if you couldn't sue the foreign government. Is that basically where that stood? Yeah, that's the gist of it. I mean, with a foot stomp on your earlier warning about conflicts, there are two lawsuits out there. One is by WhatsApp against NSO Group under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and some California state law claims, and the other one is by Apple against NSO Group, also in Northern District of California. And the idea is that, you know, and this is important for as on technical side, I mean, you can have end-to-end -end encryption as strong and as magnificent as, as the greatest mathematicians and computer scientists can create. But if you've got spyware on the phone, you know, the spyware can read what you read on your screen, sort of beyond the end or at the end. And so it's you know, it's a threat to end-to-end -to -end encryption's functionality if people can read the plain text that you can read using spyware. And so there are these lawsuits, and it in the defense that at least has been initially offered was sovereign immunity under the 
FSIA, not to be confused with the FISA. Those of us who do a lot of surveillance work keep misreading that thing. But the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and it's obvious NSO Group is not itself a foreign sovereign, but there are various common law and maybe statutory derivative immunity arguments because they said they were acting as an agent of, of governments in selling the spyware. The um, case went up to the Ninth Circuit where the you know redoubtable Michael Dreben argued the case for WhatsApp and prevailed. I think Apple has Ben Powell. So like, there's no shortage of like super high-powered, wicked smart lawyers for private industry on this. I actually don't know who what NSO group has. But the case is now in the Supreme Court and the court called for the views of the Solicitor General and they filed... And, and the calling for the views was a victory for NSO. Uh, yes, it shows the, the issue might be harder than a simple, you know, certiorari review denied, uh, which is what you know the private companies would have wanted. And the SG's uh, brief is actually pretty interesting, as I read it. It basically says, "Look, the law in this area is a little bit of a hot mess." And we are not going to foreclose once and for all the position of the United States as to the possibility of derivative immunity for agents of sovereigns. But for the usual run of reasons, this is not a good case to review that question. And the Ninth Circuit clearly got it right. And Michael Driven's an excellent lawyer. And so you should just leave it as it is and don't take it. But <laughs> but they do sort of you know, acknowledge that they've disagreed with the restatement of foreign relations law and that, you know, like I said, it's a bit of a hot mess. Yeah. They I, were, think, I thought they were saying there might be a time when we would buy this argument, but not here, <laughs> not now. And nobody else has bought it either. You should yeah, let this one let it cook. go. Right. Yeah. And, and this probably, I mean, that is a conventional set of arguments about the ripeness and maturity of the law. You know, usually there is a pretty well understood prudential doctrine of letting conflicts and, and doctrine percolate in the lower federal courts before the Supreme Court steps in to, you know, pronounce its wisdom on the matter. So I, I would not be surprised if certiorari were denied here. Uh, for the reasons that the government stated in its brief. But it is an interesting area of law, and maybe Jim's academic colleagues at either institution can pursue their goals of getting tenure by writing about this. I think there's a lot to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, it, it is a massively complicated area of the law, that is, that, that the sovereign immunity piece of this. And, you know, reciprocity is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing in the law. So whatever the U.S. government asserts in terms of, of reciprocity, in terms of immunity one way or the other, they're going to want to be applied to their own citizens. You well, know. they'll be worried about it, right? They, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, they, they, exactly. There's a bunch of contractors. I mean, the Italian who, courts have occasionally gone after, you know, either CIA affiliates or others, I think, for various war on terror stuff. So it that's probably what well, they're thinking we, about. We have the uh, we have our own government bringing a civil ITAR international traffic and arms regulation case against three former NSA employees for providing surveillance assistance to the UAE. ITAR uh, arms control regulations obviously also carry criminal penalties. So again, this goes to the sort of muddied aspect of this whole set of issues around surveillance technology. David previously said that. The Pegasus case has the, the two pieces of it, the, the U.S. government use of it, and should the government be able to use it? And the second piece being, how do we control on a global basis the spread and use of this technology? So it's the classic sort of dual-use technology problem or the 
problem of control technology generally, which is we believe it is appropriate for the United States and other democratic countries pursuant to rules to use this dangerous technology. But at the same time, we put great effort into trying to stop other countries from misusing it. And, and that's what we're going to we're going to see that worked out, I think, over the next six months or so, the administration sent a letter to their critics on this topic saying, no, no, we're doing all kinds of things about spyware. And one of the things that they pointed to is they've had these colloquies of like-minded, freedom-loving countries on things like spyware. They had one that was kind of a uh, damp squib, but they promised to do one in 2023 in which there'll be kind of a code of conduct for governments who are thinking about hacking. And it's basically, I assume, it's going to be the David Chris principles. You should do this, but only with a warrant and maybe a few other protections against misuse. I like the sound of that, Stuart. Thank you. <laughs> the Chris principles. <laughs> <laughs> Comply with all laws and rules at all times. Thank you very much. And I... I I don't know what to make of the French spyware lawsuit. It's a criminal prosecution for torture of dissidents. And God knows Muammar Gaddafi surely tortured some dissidents. The people that are being sued were not spyware manufacturers in the classic, in the current sense. They made packet monitoring equipment and they sold it to Gaddafi and he apparently used it to track down his critics and probably do bad things to them. The CEO, I think, and a couple of his high officials, or high officers from his company, are going to face trial on being implicated in the torture. And again, it, 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 that's another example of this this problem, which is how do you control the use of surveillance technology? And governments traditionally have used a combination of trade regulation as well as criminal sanctions to try to do so. So I think the French case is something that countries are going to be confronting increasingly. Yeah. The technology is there. There is a market in the technology. And then the question becomes, how do we control, regulate it? Who gets to use it? Under what rules? Well, and one thing we haven't said that hangs over all of this, there is nothing that the U.S. and Western liberty-loving countries can offer in this regard that if they cut it off from the, the rest of the world, couldn't be supplied by China in 20 minutes. Oh, uh, absolutely. And, and so a lot of this is, you know, people talking about which ineffectual methods of controlling this technology they're going to adopt. For me, they're a little bit steward in that, you know, just because something is not effective doesn't mean we don't do it or because, it, you know, we, we have a sort of spider web of, of rules and sort of attempts at controlling any of these activities. The alternative is to do nothing and let it just be a, a wild, wild west. I think the U.S. government can and should use the tools at its disposal on its own and try to move other countries as well. That's what we do across the board on so many other dangerous things. You know, knowing that knowing that we're never going to be fully successful or knowing that even our efforts may be marginal. I mean, look at the criminal indictments of hacking. Yeah, they're, they're, they ended up being very elaborate press releases. But, well, a fair number of people have been extradited. I mean, the PLA officers never will be. The GRU guys are never going to leave Russia. But a lot of these guys do go on vacation in nice places. They get arrested. They get extradited. Yeah. It, it's a tool. It's, it's yeah. one tool among many. 
Fair enough. Okay, well, and the U.S. is struggling with its own set of regulations of technology in the context of national security and Chinese penetration of the tech sector. The FCC finally finished up its effort to ban a bunch of Chinese companies from the telecom infrastructure, something they started in March of 2021. This is the FCC trying to be quick. They finally did that last week. And then there's a lot of alarm over DJI's drones, which are by far the cheapest consumer drones, all over Washington in violation of a whole bunch of FAA rules about where you can fly drones. Nobody is saying the Chinese are doing this, but they've made drones that are pretty easy for ordinary people to hack, and people are hacking them because they want to fly them at home instead of out in the country. So, Jim, I'm not sure where we think all of this goes. I mean, it's pretty clear the FCC has had a big impact on what equipment you can buy in the United States. The DJI thing is less clear. I don't think there's a lot of alternatives to DJI. Yeah, that may be true, Stuart. The FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, according to the Politico article, says there are already more than 870,000 drones registered in the United States, three times the number of piloted aircraft. That number is obviously going to go up into the millions in the next couple of years. A large percentage of them are made by DJI. Senator Marco Rubio has, a, as a relatively simple proposal, which would be to add DJI to the covered equipment list. That is this list maintained by the FCC under congressional direction, a list of prohibited equipment. Up till now, it's a, it's a relatively short list. Huawei and ZTE on the telecom side and three, or four, vision, um, three or four companies. Yeah, three yeah. or four companies on the surveillance side, Hytera, Hangzhou, Hikvision, Dawa Technology. Actually, Kaspersky is on the list now too. And this had been sort of this, the, the, the FCC rule is that the last step, or at least the latest step in this long running process going back to jawboning in the 2000s, jawboning the major telcos to stop buying Huawei equipment then the provisions in the National Defense Authorization Act, first prohibiting the DOD from buying anything with the Huawei equipment in it, then a further provision, the, the really important one, prohibiting the DOD from doing business with any contracting with anybody who uses any service that includes any Huawei equipment, then the Secure Networks Act, then the FCC ban on use of universal service funds for Huawei and ZTE equipment, and sort of this gradual ratcheting up. It was interesting that some folks at Georgetown issued a report just about a month ago saying that a lot of Huawei equipment was still coming into the United States being purchased by state and local governments. And so now finally, the FCC has taken the step of denying further equipment authorization for any equipment by any entity on this covered equipment list. And then the question is, where do we go after that? And, and should it be drones? And Senator Rubio has proposed adding drones to that kind of a, a list or DJI drones that the Pentagon has long since stopped buying Chinese drones. They actually have this program. I, I haven't really followed up on it, but there's this so-called Blue UAS program, which is sort of 
certifying non-Chinese drones mm-hmm. for U.S. government purchase. So there I think, are, I think Nick Weaver probably makes a, a drone in that program. <laughs> there, are, there are some alternatives out there. I think it's where it's we need a, to go. It's not a lack of a product. It's a lack of product with all the features at, at a really low price that is yeah, uh, hurting. Yeah, fair. Uh, right, uh, right. Which was the case DJI's with Huawei. Better. I mean, Huawei yeah, was yeah. pretty good. It was, and was real cheap. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The drone problem is one that derives in part because there's a very big domestic lobby, just users, who don't like having their choices restricted. In fact, it took a lot of work to get any kind of regulatory law passed. And it was mostly a law that said, you know, if you're trying to figure out who's controlling a drone, when you look at the communications between the drone and the controller, it's not a wiretap, which which was what was stopping a lot of this. Remarkably kind of compounding a stupidity that we saw with FISA, they decided to make that authority expire after five years it's going to expire next yeah. year it's 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 we're, we're way behind and if you've watched any of the ukraine videos of the use of drones you know i there are plenty of people in the united states who wouldn't mind dropping bombs from drones either and we just have no idea how to deal with that problem it's the it's the next again. It's very much in my mind related to this surveillance technology question, which is this technology is out there, and we're trying to develop a, a regulatory framework for it. Well, I'm sure you know if you ask the New York Times and the Washington Post, they'll say, "Oh, we can solve that problem. Let's just make sure the FBI doesn't do it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so Maury, though this debate has come to Britain as well, and they they they're a lot farther if you if you view that. The path that Jim laid out in telecom as the path that others will follow, the Brits are way early on that path with respect to surveillance cameras, but they have said, we don't want Chinese surveillance cameras in sensitive locations or hooked up to government networks. That's, that's a pretty modest step, but it is the first step. Yeah, and it, it seems like a sensible first step. I mean, I have a perspective that this debate, it's hard to unpick the competitive side of this debate from the security side of this debate. It's almost impossible, including because we don't know what the real security problems are with these things, because, but what we're most worried about is what we can't see. But a, you know, a balanced position on that is start restricting these things in high security applications. And I think that's what the British government has done, and it's probably a pretty reasonable step. Yeah, so that's the beginning. I, I, I'm sure there'll be more once, because once this rock starts rolling downhill, it it tends to pick up speed. So we'll probably see more of that. The last topic in this area is, I thought, a really interesting story from the Wall Street Journal about China's Baidu saying, "Hey, you know the AI rules that the United States that are meant to." cut us off from U.S. assistance in doing artificial intelligence aren't actually going to have much of an impact on us because we can buy chips that are just under the, the limit. And besides, you know, really sophisticated chips don't matter so much for AI. I, I thought that was completely plausible and really raises serious questions about whether the U.S. is going to be able to decouple AI the way it's decoupling chips. 
Yeah, and the flip side of my perspective on blocking Chinese access to our networks, even if we block the access, we're just doing to them what they've been doing to us for decades. But it's very different to say that our products can't be sold to China. And in my view, that's really shooting ourselves in the foot from an industrial perspective, because the theory is we're going to set the Chinese back. But the truth is, they're not going to be set back as much as we think they're going to be set back, and they're going to develop their own industry to do this. And ultimately, we're hurting U.S. companies and advancing Chinese interests. And you see this all the time in other sectors. You know, people have been saying the war in Ukraine and the Russians thought cutting off gas was going to kill Europe. You know, the Europeans find ways around the Russian gas pretty quickly. Gas prices have stabilized. There's lots of other examples. So I find it totally plausible that this is the case. And it will become more the case. The longer we cut off these supplies, the more the Chinese will develop alternate supplies. Yeah. Okay. So a couple more AI stories that I thought were interesting. Google, I think this is, you know, a, a dumb combining of two stories. Google is finally going to lay off a few people itself after everybody else has. And it's investing in trying to teach artificial intelligence to write code. That's been as far as I can see, the great white whale of the people who don't have a lot of coders since the 1990s when Japan tried to do it and, and failed completely. You follow AI. Do you think that there, it's plausible that we are actually close to having AI that can write code? No, this I agree with you. This is a dumb story. It's linking up a few job cuts at Google with the long-running story that AI is going to take our jobs. So AI is making progress in helping with code. GitHub has something called Copilot that helps you write code. Right. But at the level of precision Google needs for code, they're not going to have AI written code running on their networks. This is a, a tool that will, you know, that will improve. It'll make it easier for yeah, those it, smart it, programmers it, it, to write it'll code. It'll be easier to write boring code because the boring code's already been written. Yeah, and it might help check some of their code, but people have been building code writing improvement tools, you know, starting with integrated development environments and libraries that you combine. For years, code writing is getting more efficient, but this is not the reason that Google is cutting jobs. You know, and there's another story it's, it's about Amazon. Yeah, the, 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 this, the story about Amazon laying off recruiting people because they've got an AI tool that will help them decide who to bring in for an interview. I think on that ground that they're the idea that they're saving a lot of money by doing that is implausible because I don't think the tool's quite ready. The thing that I'm most interested in, though, is how that engine is supposed to work. I mean, Amazon you know, had an own goal where they basically shot themselves in the foot by saying, oh yeah, we used to have a, an AI tool like that about 10 years ago, but it turned out to be racist and sexist, so we got rid of it. And so now when they roll out a new tool that's supposed to do this, people are going to be fly-specking it, looking for intersectional, you know, racial, transgender discrimination. I don't see how they survive that scrutiny. And in the process of trying to survive it, I predict that they are going to write quotas, racial and ethnic and gender quotas, into their engine in ways that are going to beg for a lawsuit or a scandal. So I agree with you on the first point. For the same reason as the Google story, this is a, a dumb story about AI. It's not actually going to 
change the job picture at Amazon very much. Things like the problems at Alexa are what are moving the needle on jobs at Amazon. On the latter, you know, researchers have gotten a lot better at minimizing bias in AI. You won't be able to get the bias completely out of it, but I'm not sure that it's worse than humans. And across the industry, people are using AI-driven tools to improve hiring processes. So yeah, yes, Amazon I'm, will get fly spec, but I, I think they'll continue down this road to some extent. It is my theory, and there's plenty of evidence to support this, that the way people are take quote taking the bias unquote out of AI is by jamming quotas into the AI, by training it that if it no matter how sure it is that a candidate is better than some other candidate, if it doesn't meet a uh, proportionate representation goal, then that's the wrong choice. And you can train, since you can train machines on any standard you want, the, it, the machine learning is just saying, no, that's the wrong answer. Even if it would be a better candidate, it doesn't meet our needs. And there are a lot of ways to do that and to hide it in the final outcome, but you can't hide it in the training. And that's my guess is what's going on here. But we'll see. There's been very little said about exactly how this engine works. This is all very illuminating. I now have two profound fears. First, that someone develops an AI that can give legal and policy advice which would put all, us, all of us out of work. And second, even more acutely, that they train that model on Stuart. And then the world will end as we know it. So <laughs> if, if you need me, right. I'll be hiding under my desk. <laughs> it, it will be, it will be, the, 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 you, you, people will just say, I'm sorry, that's what the computer says. You, you're, you must be wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm, I volunteer the, all 432 episodes of the Cyberlaw podcast to train the, uh, the AI. <laughs> I was just going to say that this, this must be why you've done so many episodes of the podcast and keep going. <laughs> All right. So let's try to do so a few quick stories. We did a story on how Australia was going to put together a joint military or intelligence and law enforcement group to really go after the ransomware gangs who have caused lots of trouble down under. And Shortly after they made that announcement, the site that the ransomware gang that did the big metabank attack was using to expose data like, you know, a spreadsheet of everybody who'd gotten abortion at metabank went down. I think the, the, the quick answer is that's almost certainly just a coincidence. The Australian government has not taken credit for that. And given the pressure they're under to do something about ransomware, I think they would have taken credit if that was their doing. But we'll see. You know, it would be great if that, that were the case. I'm skeptical. All right. And China's social credit law, Maury, you should take this. This was a MIT technology review story, which, you know, MIT tech review is usually kind of liberal uh, consensus. But this one actually taught me something. Yeah, it's a really good article, and I would we won't be able to do it justice on the podcast, but the basic message is China has a financial credit system which fairly resembles what we have in the West, and their social credit system, which is this idea that you, you know, get punished for antisocial behavior, isn't the widespread dystopian thing that it's made out to be. It's, you know, some ideas, it's been a few cities have tested it in a more substantial way, but there isn't some plan to roll out some great 
social credit system. We shall see. The one thing that I think the article left out is there is a system in China where people who are specifically designated as undesirable, so fraud or something like that, can be, you know, without a conviction, can be deprived of the right to take air air travel and high-speed trains and stuff like that. That is a much more broad system, but it, it doesn't amount to the, the social credit system that people have been really blowing out of proportion. Yeah, I think that's right, which means that Silicon Valley is actually ahead of China in implementing this. You know, Airbnb will ban you from ever using their facilities if you are associated, in their view, with somebody that they have decided to ban because of things they've said online someplace else. There's a story about them saying, well, you shared an IP address with somebody that uh, we've banned, so we're banning you. And PayPal is now saying, well, if you engage in hate speech someplace else, not only will we stop doing business with you, but we'll take $2,500 out of your bank account before we do it. These are much more serious uh, social credit penalties than the Chinese Communist Party has adopted. Very yeah, sad. I might, uh, I might disagree with you on the politics of it, but I agree with you that Silicon Valley has much better tech than yeah. the Chinese government and does. And they're using stuff. it with a will to enforce their view of virtue. Okay. This one, this is a, a perennial story. NSA and Cyber Command have one leader who wears both hats and have had for 15 years. And that dual hat arrangement has been reconsidered in four reviews over three administrations. The Biden administration review just finished. No change is likely. There certainly wasn't recommended. I kind of think that is the right answer. And certainly after all this review, it's very hard to make the case that the two hats should be broken up. I gather that the intelligence committees feel differently about that. I have no idea why. So we'll go on to our last topic, which of course is the Musk apocalypse at Twitter. And, you know, we, we all have probably different views of him. I kind of admire his enthusiasm and maybe his naivete in pursuit of bringing back people like the Babylon Bee, who ever deserved to be cut off, or, you know, the New York Post. But he's going to run into and, and is already hearing from regulators, from the FTC regulating his privacy paperwork, to a French regulator who said, hey, you know, you have an obligation to take down what we consider to be hate speech. Speech. And if you don't, we can fine you 6% of your global last year's revenue. And as far as I can see, uh, Musk's answer to that is annual revenue. I think I could drive that to zero and then you've got nothing. <laughs> the thing I'll say on this one is just I did think the New York Times, I think it was the Times, had a pretty interesting story about the way Musk's approach to Twitter with, you know, cutting the workforce and trying to do so without paying much severance and, you know, enforcing this hardcore mentality or whatever is very, very similar to what he did apparently at yes. prior companies. So it's, it's, it may be stupid, ineffective, bad, you know, ultimately self-defeating and whatever, which is, I think, consensus liberal view, but, but it isn't, as far as, as I can tell, random. This is an MO that he uses in other settings. Question is, does it work well here? There are a lot of differences between social media and electric cars or batteries on wheels and, you know, tunnel making and rocket ships and stuff. And the, and the guy does make stuff. But it, 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 there is a method to this, even if it's the wrong method. It isn't just completely random, you know, flailing. So it's worth pointing out. I agree out. with you. 
in, in fact, if he had three years, I would be betting on him to pull this off, that he would find a way to use his engineers and his enormous audience to build a product that people wanted and that generated revenue. I just don't think he's got three years. I think that the the people who hate him own the government in the United States. They own the government all over Europe, and they own the media in both markets. And they will use this to trash him so relentlessly that I just don't see how Twitter survives, given that it's dependent on advertisers who are easy to, to, to buffalo. I think, Stuart, the, the market forces far outweigh any impact to the government. And it's going to work or not work based upon market decisions, advertiser decisions, well, completely separate and apart from what the government. If you want a bellwether, Ben Wittes has started a Mastodon instance. So, you know, time to sell. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, in this area, he's, he's, he's indistinguishable from your average lefty. But you're, you're right. He's a tech lover with idiosyncratic views on some things. But I, you know, I, I'd love to be able to say I see a, a way out for Musk on this, but I actually don't. Okay, uh, Jim, David, Maury, thanks for joining us. Please, if, if, you've got, if, if you're listening to this and you've got questions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating. That would be great. Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 432 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Cyberlaw Podcast.